Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. The next Missouri legislative session is less than a month away, and with the new year comes a new class of both representatives and senators bringing their own priorities and goals. On this episode of Politically Speaking, state representative and soon-to-be state senator Mary Elizabeth Coleman joins the show to talk about what her priorities are going into session this year. We also discuss how she feels Republicans fared in the general election and what the party might accomplish this session. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, State House and Politics reporter Sarah Kellogg. Joining me is my co-host. He is the political correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio. Jason Rosenbaum. And joining us today in studio, we're all in the same room today. It's really, really hey, exciting. Hey. She is the Republican state representative for the 97th district and is soon to be state senator for the 22nd district. Mary Elizabeth Coleman. Welcome back to the show. Kind of for our listeners, remind us kind of where your district is right now and as well as who you will be representing as a senator. Sure. So I currently represent the 97th district in a format that has completely gone away. Um, But I represent parts of South St. Louis County um, and Northern Jefferson County. And as the senator-elect for the state, uh, for the 22nd senatorial district, I'll be representing most of Northern Jefferson County. So Elaine Gannon has four or five other counties um, and then just the very Southern part of the county. But most of Jeffco um, I'll be representing and I'm replacing Senator Paul Whelan, who's term limited. So I guess kind of my first one is why did you decide to run for state Senate? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that Paul Whelan uh, has he's been a friend of mine for many years. He actually was the first person that I called when I decided to run for state rep. Um, and when he was term limited, he brought um, a viewpoint and a way of approaching things that I really admire and I like. And when I looked at the other people that were talking about running, I was worried that that worldview wouldn't be well represented. And so, um, you know, sometimes people think that you should wait your turn, quote unquote. I still had four years that I could have served in the House of Representatives. But because of term limits, those seats become open only every eight years, usually. And um, I, I can't imagine primarying a sitting Republican. And so if I wanted to continue to serve uh, and ever to serve in the state Senate, really, realistically, it meant, well, let's try for this. And, um, you know, if it didn't work out, then it would have been an honor to have served in the House and my time would have been done. But looking forward to kind of heading over to the other side. Yeah, you didn't have any kind of desire to maybe wait until another term limit. You kind of wanted to can kind of serve consecutively. Or... I think it's hard to run if you have a four-year gap also. I think that, you know, your name ID goes pretty quickly There was a lot of money that was spent um, in my first primary and then in my first general election to the state rep seat. And so, you know, you're not kind of in the news. People aren't talking about you anymore. It's just easier, I think, if you're going to if you're going to try to go to the Senate to go from having just served in the House. 
What are going to be some of your priorities when you're sworn in in January? So I think as Republicans, one of the things that's frustrating for me is we don't always articulate why the policies we're advancing are going to help, you know, just normal people. Um, When I'm going for a walk in the evening with Chris or if I'm running into people at Walmart or see people at my kid's school, Republican policies often seem to be um, packaged as kind of bombastic and not necessarily focused on the day-to-day governance. And so I'm really focused on things that will help Missouri working families, in particular Jefferson County. So there's a package of uh, reforms that I filed around education reform, around our safety net reform. I think that we need to make sure that the help is going directly to citizens who need it and that we're not um, kind of wasting taxpayer dollars that people have a path to independence, that they're not stuck in a system. Um, And then also just making life easier, right? Everything is more expensive right now. I'm continuing some tax reform policy that I started in the House trying to make sure that things that aren't really luxuries are not taxed like that. So getting rid of the grocery sales tax, the state's portion, and then also getting rid of, sometimes people call it the pink tax um, on diapers and feminine hygiene products. And we'll get into those specifics a little bit later in the show. But do you think, you know, you'll have a better chance at meeting those priorities you know, in the Senate as opposed to staying in the House. You know, an example I think of is, you know, Senator Holly Rader, who for years had legislation that she wanted to get through in the House, and she finally did her first term in the Senate. And so I'm curious if that's kind of, do you think you're going to have a better shot at these? Well, there's only 34 senators instead of 162 state reps. So certainly immediately that creates more opportunity for you to be able to move things that are important to you. But also Missouri is really fortunate, I think, that we have one of the last few standing filibusters. And so that procedural move, along with some other ways that the Senate operates, like, for example, every senator gets to file three priority bills um, and name them. And before any other bill gets filed, it goes through the list in seniority. So I'm the 20 representing the 22nd district, or I will, but I also have the 22nd number of seniority for um, the Republicans. There's 24 uh, Republicans in the state Senate. And so you know, my bills are much higher numbered. And that that kind of rec- the way that those get referred to committee, it just means things move faster. So does that mean Ben Brown is like 34th because he's never been elected to anything before? He and he and um, Senator-elect Jill Carter, their numbers, I forgot, they drew. And then um, Rusty Black and Nick Schroer and Curtis Trent, they all had to draw also because they all had the same number of years of service in the House. Oh. So... The way the new senators rank in order, I don't know for Jill and Ben, but it goes. And then Tracy, because we have a majority, she'll be last. Oh, okay. State Representative Tracy McCurry, who because, just got elected. Because to the state she Senate. has like 10 years of House experience because of a strange. Nine, uh, yeah. yeah. She came in on a special yeah. election. Almost 10. Almost 10. But you're coming into the Senate at a time where there's been a lot of infighting within the Republican caucus. Like, Do you have any concerns that that's going to continue once you're sworn in? You know, I'm a mom of many, and I think so. Sometimes I look at things through that lens, and sometimes you have a bad class, not bad kids, but the chemistry of that class is kind of off. And I think that that's what we saw the last two years in particular. Um, This incoming freshman class, we know each other. We really like each other. you know, State Representative McCreary and I agree on almost no policy. Don't make any mistake about that. But personally, we like and respect each other. And she's an honest broker. And I think she would say the same thing about me. And so when you have that level of trust or relationship, you're able to build from that. 
and certainly the other Republicans that are coming in know and like each other, too. What, what do you make of the, the decision to dissolve the conservative caucus? Because I think when you and especially Representative, soon-to-be Senator Schroer, were running, there was like, well, are they going to be part of the mm-hmm. conservative caucus? Are they going to be part of the what, what what's the non-conservative caucus called? The it depends on who you talk to. There's, I mean, derisive terms for either subgroup. And I've I think, normally said like Republican leadership and then like conservative caucus. I don't want to call them the normal caucus because that would be saying the conservative caucus is abnormal. Yeah. But like, oh, you know well, what I mean? Yeah. No. So listen, we should have one caucus of Republicans. And I think that that's really important. When you look at the people who won the primaries across the state, by and large, the most conservative Republican won in all, I think actually in every single case, even in open primaries. And so we are going to be more conservative by nature because of the people who won that those seats. Um, but I also think that our style is a little bit different. And one of the things that people talk about is in the Senate, it makes sense to me to join in and try to bring 20 votes with you in the House because now you're a voting block that people have to really contend with. But in the state Senate, one senator has the a real ability to affect outcome and legislative goals. And so I don't see giving up the representation for my district or, you know, I I don't know. I'm, I'm pleased to see that we're back to one caucus. Yeah. And do you have faith kind of in the new leadership and helping with those? In addition to the new class coming in, do you feel like the divide will be less visible this coming year? Well, I, I mean, the truth is, I don't really see that there was much of a policy divide even in the last two years. I think it was mostly personality-based. And because we have a different mix of personalities, you're going to see that play What out. about on redistricting, though? That was a palpable policy divide. But that was not necessarily along who is the most conservative or who is. So sometimes these labels just break down. Mm-hmm. And what ways people wanted to work out. You had some people who were, um, you know, wanting primarily looking at bases needing to be together. And you had some people. So everybody even had their own interests, even within that fight. Yeah. But people who were not for a seven to one map were called rhinos. So I I feel like that's kind of rewriting history a little bit. Well, okay, so maybe I will say outside of the redistricting. And that was one fight in particular that I was not really involved in because Mm -hmm. my primary opponent uh, Representative Dan Shaw was the one who was leading the effort for the 6-2 map. And so there was no real reason for me to weigh in on that. I prefer to 7-1. Um, but, I, you know, I think labels aren't particularly helpful for people who are trying to get things done. And my style has always been to try to focus on where are the points of agreement and let's try to move things forward. I kind of want to um, move on to election takeaway. So kind of how do you feel Republicans fared this past election in the state of Missouri? Well, it's the first time I think, Jason, you might know this. Is it 100 years that we've had Republicans in every statewide office? Maybe ever? Maybe ever. I mean, in the 1920s, there was a time when Republicans were winning everything. But it's been a long time. It's been a long time. So that's a huge win. and And I think that Governor Parson has to get credit for that as the head of the ticket, that we have all statewide wins. That's phenomenal. Um, basically, in the Senate, it's been a wash. Um, you know, that seat, the 24th uh, senatorial seat, was the only real competitive race in the state. And that wasn't one that was a Republican seat. Uh, the last cycle, I think it was John Lamping who held it the last time yes. that a Republican did. And mm-hmm. so it's been a while since Republicans held that seat. Um, so by and large, I've been really happy with the the election results. Now, you know, you're going to follow up question and ask me about the state house and what happened there. Um we did lose how many three seats? Um, I, most of that seems to me to be a 
um, a result of the redistricting process more than anything else. And when you looked at we made 10 swing seats and Republicans picked up seven, only in such a super minority state would that be seen as a good win, right? So by having 10 more swing seats and us winning seven of the 10, that's about right for the percentage that Democrats are doing across the state. And I, I asked this to Representative uh, Weber, uh, Emily Weber. I mean, I think the Democrats have a lot to be proud of in the fact that they won in like Boone County and Jackson County, but they didn't make any gains in Jeffco. They didn't make any gains in St. Charles. They didn't make any gains in Buchanan or Cass County. Well, in but Boone County, for example, our outgoing state rep in that seat that she's so excited about picking up had said some problematic things to this, you know, been pretty aggressive and um, the tone was a little bit difficult. And so a lot of times you see candidate selection matters a heck of a lot. And so um, they had really strong candidates in some of those places. And I think that where you saw those three pickups, I, I don't know, I'm just not that worried about it. Yeah. Do you imagine, you know, in addition to kind of making with those Democratic gains, there are just more competitive seats, more competitive races with this new map. So do you imagine kind of for the next couple election cycles really having these competitive races where both parties really need to bring strong candidates to win? I do think that you see candidate selection matter more than ever when you have more competitive seats. And if you look at the state house in particular, the strongest representatives, I think, have come from swing states swing districts. So those purple districts tend to send stronger representatives than either party's safe seats. Um, but not really, because also you've got now incumbencies. So now we've got seven of those 10. I think it's harder to knock off an incumbent than it is an open seat. How do you think that overturning Roe versus Wade had an effect on state legislative elections? Yeah, I, I just don't think that we heard we talked you and I talked a lot about this in advance of the 2020 election mm -hmm. and Missouri really didn't have access to abortion long before the Dobbs decision was decided in fact about 18 months um, we were ahead of even Texas losing access to abortion and so I don't think that it had the key role now certainly and the statewide elections maybe if you look at the margin um, in some of our suburban areas, you're going to see maybe women had a higher uptick. But I haven't checked out those numbers to see whether there was higher participation rates because, by and large, I think it was a pretty high turnout election everywhere. Well, like when you were campaigning in Jefferson County, and that was right around the time Roe was overturned. Yeah. Like what were voters telling you about awesome. that? Awesome. Congra congratulations. This is amazing. Tears in their eyes, welcoming me at the grocery store. I, when I say truly, there is no more impactful legislation that I've ever worked on than as one of the architects of the heartbeat bill. It is the thing I will forever be the most proud of because of the lives that have been saved and the dignity that has been brought. And so, I, you know, I just, it's interesting to see the, the hand-wringing that is done in the media about the decision as a disconnect between those in my district who are beyond thrilled, have been literally praying for 50 years for this result. And we'll talk more about that, especially as it relates to the initiative petition process later in the show. Do you feel like there are any other policies that might have caused more people to go to the polls? I know Amendment 3 was kind of thrown out there, a lot of the mm -hmm. uh, legalizing adult use of marijuana. Do you think that, that was such a strange... I've been wanting to talk to you guys about that that <laughs> campaign in well, particular because I have never seen Tashara Jones and the Catholic Church <laughs> and... Even Thampy, all on the same side of something. It was like such an interesting cross section of people who were fighting against it. But by and large, when you read the language, 
I, people wanted legalization. I haven't, and I should have, I'm sorry, I should have looked these things up, but before to see what percentage I, I think passed Jeffco, in Jeffco. I think Jeffco approved it. We did, but and I don't know what the, the margin was. It, was. it was not, it was not a lot, but it goes to like with. Yeah, it won in Jeffco. It won in, I think, 11 counties. Yeah, and that's the question is whether or not, you know, a lot of times when you think about like marijuana, like legislation, I know, for example, uh, you know, Ron Hicks was the sponsor of it when the state house, but had a lot of Democratic support. You know, you think that is a Democratic issue, but is this at, po- at this point, you know, seeing it passed, do you think this is just a bipartisan supported policy? I think it's demographics, too. I mean, I, you know, everybody in this room is under 40, right? And you kind of look at, or I guess I'm probably the oldest at 40, but I, I don't think that people's politics play into whether they think it should be legalized or not at a certain age demographic. And that the legislature couldn't get to a point that we agreed on is why we had this result. I actually, I voted against Amendment 3. I thought it was terribly written and it creates some real problems um, from an administration standpoint. But people are done with not being able to legalize when you can go into all these other states that do. Do you think that there could be added things that the legislature needs to do now that it's legal. For example, after Thursday, if I went to Illinois and brought back three ounces of marijuana, it would be totally legal. But, you know, it could could still be legal for my employer to fire me for having three ounces of marijuana. And I, I understand people may not be comfortable with having that much marijuana, but it's literally in the Constitution that I can have that. And I don't know why I would get disciplined in my job because of that. What what do you think about that? So one of the things that you saw the Chamber of Commerce really pressing back in the last two years in regards to COVID policy was where is the line about what employers are allowed to regulate because their licensing or insurance requirements prevent it and what is a right that people have as employers or employees to be able to live their life unfettered. And so um, I, I don't I hear what you're saying, but I have a hard time imagining something passing that would erode an employer's rights because of the bonding and the insurance, as well as the federal contracts where it's still illegal. It's got it. We're kind of in this no man's land, even though we're the 20 whatever state to legalize this. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with State Representative Mary Elizabeth Coleman. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. And we're back on Politically Speaking. I'm Sarah Kellogg. Joining me is my co-host, St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum. And our guest this week is Republican Representative Mary Elizabeth Coleman, who represents the 97th District, which covers parts of St. Louis and Jefferson County. But in the new year, she will be the state senator for District 22. So I want to get into the upcoming session. It is less than a month away. Marathon's about to begin, which is exciting, uh, but also very overwhelming. Uh, You know, with redistricting not taking up oxygen this year, do you believe that will free up more time this session for Republicans to accomplish goals? Well, there's always something that's going to jam up the process. So I don't know what that thing is going to be yet. Um, But, you know, the only thing that stays the same is that there's some big thing that no one can agree on that's going to take air out of the room. Um, So I'm not sure what that's going to be. I will say the tone seems to be different this year. Um, the conversation seems to be in more agreement, certainly at Senate caucus meeting. Um, there seemed to be broad agreement about where we should be starting on things. I'm hearing from uh, 
the new majority floor leader in the House, John Patterson from Kansas City, and the uh, Speaker-elect, Dean Plocker, there's agreement from the House on what policies. And so I think we're going to see some some good movement. Um, but something will stop it. I just don't know what it'll be yet. So when I was talking with incoming Senate Majority Leader Cindy Laughlin and I asked her, what are going to be the big issues? Unprompted, she said initiative petition overhaul was going to be a top priority. First of all, do you agree with that? And if so, what exactly about the initiative petition process would you like to see changed? So what I would like to see changed versus what the caucus wants to be seen, I don't know about the details of where everybody's at. So initiative petition is, I'm sure your listeners are really sophisticated, so they know, but it's the process by which the people, um, and and really usually it's big donors because it takes about $2 million to pass something on the ballot, um, gather signatures and have language put on the ballot, and then they can have either a statute change like what we pass um, in the legislature and General Assembly, or It's constitutional amendments. And so what I have heard broad support for and what I support is looking at constitutional amendment changes, um, increasing the threshold of voters, either geographically or by percentage or maybe even both. Um, Our Constitution is really crazy big. And I was in the Senate uh, secretary's office last week, and she has framed an original copy on the wall it belongs to that office, the original Constitution. And guys, it's like nine pages. And that feels more appropriate to me than the book that we have now. It seems like every time we do any change, we put it in the Constitution. I don't have any problem with initiative petition for statutory changes as it's written. I think that's fine if people want to write an amendment. It is really or change the statutes. It's really hard to pass a law. People are kind of flipping about it. But if if people don't, if the legislature doesn't like what's there, and somebody wants to take a run at changing what the people put on the ballot and take the political cost of that, then I think that's fine. They should be able to do it. But I do worry about our Constitution being so unwieldy. Now, before I ask this question, I just want to note that there has been talk about doing what you're doing for years. And there have been efforts that have passed the House, but not the Senate. So this is not a new issue. Has it ever passed the Senate, though? No. I don't think so. It has never passed the Senate, which is usually where it goes to die. But do you think that there could be more emphasis on this issue because there's open talk amongst people that do not like the 2019 abortion ban wanting to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot to repeal it? Do you think that's one of the driving forces behind people like you who probably want to preserve that? Yeah, I actually am skeptical about whether something would be put on the ballot about abortion. And here's why. Because Planned Parenthood and other abortion providers voluntarily left the state long before Dobbs did because they decided it would be cheaper and easier to just pass something or not worry about it and, and you know, put abortion clinics on the border or these mobile clinics. So Missouri was did not have access before the Dobbs decision. And there was a business decision that was made by abortion providers not to continue operating in the state. I also think that it's entirely likely that Missouri would reject such an initiative. Um, it's a real gamble for them to put something like that on the Constitution and take a run at it when there's other states. There's you know, a finite amount of resources. I think it's more likely that they would go to states like Michigan um, that were strongly pro-life states but have Democratic support um, that kind of crosses lines. So I I'm really not that worried about that. So let's ask a converse question, because right before the Dobbs decision, I was talking with you about a constitutional amendment that says there is no right to an abortion in the Constitution, which is something Mm -hmm. I'm assuming you would want put in there. But if you need Mm -hmm. 60 percent, isn't that going to be a lot harder to achieve? Yeah, I also don't know. I mean, 
I think it's fine if I think that if we had done that before the Dobbs decision, it would have been more helpful. At this point, I don't know that we need it because federal law supports our position and the state law supports our position. A resolution I'm already, you know, that I've seen filed would prohibit the Missouri Constitution from protecting the right to an abortion. So do you also kind of not see that as a proper avenue to kind of address this? Or I'm curious of your thoughts on that. My position has been that our Constitution is pretty unwieldy and has a lot of things in it that don't necessarily need to be in it. This federal law is our Constitution, which allows under the Tenth Amendment for states to be able to make their own laws. And we have laws on the book that protect the unborn. So at this point, I would rather not fiddle with the Constitution. Do you think that if let's just say you end up putting something on the ballot in August 2024 to make it harder to amend the Constitution. I'm just going to use that generally because we don't know what the substance is. Do you think that would pass? Because a similar plan failed pretty miserably in Arkansas, which is not exactly a socialist utopia. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen any polling on that. I haven't seen any um, discussion on it. It is really the kind of discussion that only seems to happen in the Capitol building. And I haven't spoken with voters who are not super tight in. So I don't have an insight into whether that would pass or not. Also, though, I want to say, and I know you're trying to move on to the next question, but there's a budget that has to be available to educate voters. And so anybody who wants to pass an initiative petition, they really need two to three million dollars. And so whether that campaign came up with the budget to be able to get the message to voters, I think has the biggest impact on whether something like that would pass. So with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, you know, do you feel like there's any further to go when it comes to anti-abortion policy in the legislature now that it is not, you know, it's not something Missourians can get unless uh, medical emergencies? So I'm really, I, I said this earlier, the thing that I'm the most proud of is that I am one of the architects of the Missouri Stands for the Unborn Act. I think it's the most impactful legislation that we could have um, on saving lives. And I just, at this point, because the Dobbs decision has come through, feel really confident that our laws are in a good spot. And I'm focused on trying to do other things that will help Missouri families and preserve them. Um, kind of switching topics uh, to gun control. So after the school shooting in St. Louis, you know, multiple c gun control bills have been filed. And, uh, you know, are, the, are there any gun control measures that you would support? No. Why? I think that our laws that are in place, what we see happening is we see people not following the laws that are on the books, and we see prosecutors who are unwilling to prosecute them. I don't support any further gun laws. I just don't. I did see this Post-Dispatch article that would, and it's by Representative Lane Roberts, and it involves like putting special prosecutors for the St. Louis Circuit Attorney's Office. Have you seen that? Or I haven't seen that. But, you know, I'm really frustrated about prosecutors who are choosing to not follow the laws that are written. One of the things that um, is happening over and over again in multiple jurisdictions is people are refusing to prosecute the laws that are on the book. Agape boarding school is one that I find particularly offensive. We have a Republican prosecutor who just won their reelection. They weren't even challenged. In many of our small counties, maybe you only have one lawyer who is a Republican? Who's and so they continue to um, they continue to serve even though they're not prosecuting. Attorney General Eric Schmidt brought, I want to say it was sixty-seven or sixty-eight charges that they did an investigation into Agape. The local prosecutor file, filed very, very few and has slowly been dropping them off. So I have filed a bill that would allow a local law enforcement officer to petition a local judge to give the attorney general jurisdiction if you have a, somebody who's not following the law. Now, there is recourse if there is a feeling, especially among the attorney general, that a prosecutor is not doing their job. It's called a quo warranto 
motion where they could actually remove prosecutors. And if people think that this is unprecedented, it's not. Chris Coster tried to remove the Dent County prosecutor in 2009 because she wasn't doing her job properly. So would you want the attorney general to start using that motion if it's pretty clear that a prosecutor is not doing their job correctly? So uh, unfortunately, Chris Coster wasn't successful in that action. And my understanding is that that has not been particularly helpful. Um, the idea of it I support, and I'm glad that there is a procedure, but I would like us to see another option because that has not been really successfully used, at least in the recent history. I'm, my and my memory is fuzzy. I think she resigned before the motion went off, but I okay, I, I could my memory also could be wrong on that, but I it is we have this problem. It's a systemic problem. It's not one party versus the others elected. And so creating another opportunity for local law enforcement to petition the local judge, to appoint another prosecutor seems like a good solution to me. Um, another possible priority, you know, talk, we're talking initiative petition, uh, I think uh, sports betting. You know, that's been, I know that now... Speaking of things that are legal some places, but not here. A thousand percent. And so, you know, I know last, I think it was during special session that now President Pro Tem, Caleb Rowden, said it's embarrassing that the Missouri hasn't gotten it done yet. So do you see momentum kind of in that uh area that's here. Yeah, a lot of people are saying we should get this done. It's silly that we haven't had it done yet. Um, I don't know that necessarily sportsbook needs to be lumped in with video lottery terminals. Video lottery, lottery terminals will bring in far more revenue to the state. Um, they're just a higher volume and they already exist everywhere. So those are those machines that look like slot machines that you might have seen in a gas station. They're called gray machines because it's unclear mm -hmm. whether they're allowed or not. It's yeah. not black or white. So, um, But I think that we've got to make sure that we have a path to get that done. Yeah. Do you see better success if those are kind of split separately into separate bills as opposed to like one package like it was last year? Senator Denny Hoskins has been working on this for about nine years, so I would not give him advice about what the best way to pass something is. So uh, moving to your policy goals, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as of this morning, I looked, you've, I've done a little bit of a search and you filed nine bills. I said you talked about the priority legislation, which I didn't know about. So that's very interesting. You know, one of those bills is your bill that eliminates the sales tax on food. So I know this is something that you've introduced before. Yeah. Yeah, so I have worked on some tax reform policies in the House, and I'm continuing that work with both the sales tax on groceries as well as the sales tax on feminine hygiene products and diapers. Um, we have a provision in our Constitution that says essential items shall not be taxed. But under Proposition C that was passed in the 90s, we, we have a 1% sales tax on grocery items. Um, that funds a specific education fund. Um, I find it... There are 26 states that have eliminated that. It's a bipartisan. Republican and Democrats have worked on this. I think it's as costs are rising, we don't want to create a tax system that is a burden to the poor. And so I just think it's a, an important thing that we get rid of that sales tax um, on grocery items. Yeah, this seems like it's a, a bipartisan, has bipartisan support. And also, you know, with inflation being so high, do you think this elevates the chances of at least getting hearings and being addressed this year? I hope so. But also, it's one of the first three bills that I filed. And so it's going to be in that first batch of bills that's referred in the Senate, I would expect. And that alone increases the chance that it's going to be able to move faster. Now, you mentioned before the show that one of your priorities is to change the way basically education funding works in the state. Can you just talk about that and then I'll ask follow-up questions? Yeah, so I think that the money that is allocated by the state, so the, the state um, share, not the local share, 
should follow the child and that parents should have the freedom to decide what education their kids need. And so whether that's uh, from one public school district to another public school district, whether that means to a private or parochial school, and it also creates a refundable tax credit for homeschooling families. So how would this functionally worked work if I wanted to like use this program. Yeah, like let's say I live in the city and I wanted to send my kid to the special school district. Okay. Okay. So what I would do then is I would, um, so public to public is is the most complicated. So I'm starting with that one because I don't think that we should force a school district to take in more kids if they don't have an availability. So let's say that the state mandated number is 22 kids in a classroom and that school district has only 17 kids in it, then they would publish, hey, we have an opening for five more kids. And if there's more than five kids that are wanting to enroll, they could create a lottery system so that the kid could go there. The new school district, the parent would just sign an affidavit, and DESE would reimburse the public school district that the kid is at rather than the homeschool for that child's education. You mentioned special school district, which... uh listeners know my book two of my sons actually take advantage of the special school district and it's paid for by a property tax that's paid for by st louis county taxpayers st louis city residents do not pay the special school district tax so under your bill would the state have to reimburse ssd for them to take advantage of those services so what they would do is they would send the same amount so charter schools and um based on the how many free and reduced lunches, so they're called, and then also hold harmless schools. There's a different funding target for each of those kids. And what would happen is that the sending school district, whatever that share is that that child would get, the receiving school district would get. And if there's a delta that needs to be made up, the parents would be responsible for that under my bill. How realistic do you think it is going to be to pass this? Because not only are Democrats not going to like this, but you could have rural Republicans who typically don't like these types of ideas also come out against it. Yeah. So I'm going to push back a little bit that Democrats don't like it. So there was a poll that came out um, I think last February that showed that this is basically a 70-30 issue across all party lines. Mm-hmm. It's about an 86 percentage in favor issue for education freedom for Republicans. And I think the low point is 68 percent for Democrats. So that's a really popular idea across all lines. Parents, especially after COVID, are seeing what um, their kid is and isn't getting at their school districts. And most countries do this, right? So if you're receiving a benefit, the parent's able to decide what school their kid should be educated with, and that dollar amount will follow it. So I'm just going to push back that it's not a popular idea. You know, what are some of your other legislative policies that are focused on education this year that you're really hoping to get past the finish line? So that's my big education push. I think redoing how we get money to the schools and that parents have the freedom to pick the right school for their kid is a pretty heavy lift. So that's the piece that I'm focusing the most on. My other legislative priorities, though, are looking at how we handle our safety net programs. We have created a system of dependency where um, if you receive, let's say, Section 8 benefits and TANF, which is often called food stamps, and a child care subsidy, Um, and you work at a big box store, let's say you work at Walmart or Target, because of inflation, that base wage has gone up. And so now people are refusing hours because if you make $1 more, you could lose all of your benefits. And that's a really scary place for people to be. And so I'm looking at trying to make sure we have a pathway to independence because it's not that first raise or the more hours today I'm worried about. It's the third raise or taking a bet on yourself and opening your own business. So I'd like people to have a pathway to independence. So I'm proposing that we have a stair step off 
of those programs so that people are able to kind of climb their way out of them. You, you also have proposed uh, a bill to remove the sales tax on feminine, feminine hygiene products. Can you talk about that? Sure. So feminine hygiene products and diapers were paper products in the 60s and 70s for the first time. And at that point, um, in their infinite wisdom, somebody decided that we should tax those as a luxury item. Um, I think most families would say that these are not luxury items, although there is a new movement to go back to cloth products and reusable products. So if you're a little crunchy, but yeah. anyways, these are not luxury items in almost everybody's minds. Um, and certainly in my mind, they're everyday staples. And I don't think that we should be um, as a state funding essential services on the backs of essential items. We are out of time. So thank you so much, Representative Coleman, for joining us on the show. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can find all of our work on stlpr.org. Representative Coleman, soon-to-be Senator Coleman, where can people find you on the internet where you want to be found? Yeah, so maryelizabethcoleman.com has links to all of my social media. Um, if you want to interact with me, uh, probably Instagram is the place that I am most active. Um, that's a demographic thing. <laughs> as, I, as Twitter slowly dies, I think a lot of people are also jumping I, that I, ship to I, Instagram. I, I'm, I'm reliving my youth by doing more video stuff, so I'm also more active on Instagram, too. So. All right. Until next time. So long. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.